As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Just before we start today's show, a quick heads up that we will be discussing issues around genetics and rare medical conditions, which may well affect some of our listeners or their loved ones personally. We're aware these are sensitive and sometimes painful things to consider. And so at the end of part two next week, we share some suggestions for support if you're personally affected by this. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, I'm Tim Watt, and as always, I'm joined by my dad, uh, John Watt. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. And we're really excited today to have another guest on the show. Uh, that's Melody Redman. Uh, Melody, do you want to start by introducing yourself and saying a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Hi, everybody. My name's Melody Redman. I'm a doctor, so I am specialising in clinical genetics. So I'm a clinical genetics registrar working in the north of England. Brilliant. Um, we're really pleased to have Melody on the show because we, we wanted to spend this episode and, and next week's show digging into um, genetics um, and in particular uh, a, a new kind of NHS programme about screening newborns. But before we get into all of that, um, Melody, do you want to explain a bit more about what it is a geneticist does in the NHS? What, what does an average day look like look like for you? So clinical genetics is quite a small specialty in the NHS, so there aren't that many of us around. And we tend to work in regional centres where we'll cover quite a big geographical patch. So we're mainly based at some of the kind of bigger hospitals, but then we'll often go and do clinics at some of the smaller hospitals as well. So the way that our job works is we kind of, our time is balanced spent between seeing patients directly ourselves, which would either be in an outpatient clinic or seeing maybe an unwell baby or an unwell child on the neonatal or paediatric intensive care unit. And then the rest of our time is spent advising other clinicians and other doctors um, to try and help them find the right genetic test for their patient and help them trying to get to the bottom of what might be going on. So really our role is about trying to help find answers for people with rare diseases that might be caused by um, a problem, a change in the genetic code. So Melody, you uh, we know one another for some years and uh, you chose fairly on to to specialise in this area of genetics, didn't you? So what was it about it that, that, that interested you and, and drew you into it? Yes, yeah, so before I worked in clinical genetics, I um, worked for a few years in paediatrics, children's medicine. And um, one of the things that I really I'm interested in is the kind of interplay between science and technologies and healthcare. 
And one of the things that's really interesting about clinical genetics is we're constantly kind of at the forefront of science and there's constantly new um, advances in technology and genetic testing that's available. And I find that really interesting from kind of an ethical point of view, thinking about um, what how technology should be used. But then also it's a specialty where communication is really important because often we'll be seeing patients and families at really challenging points in their lives. We may be um, breaking some bad news to them about a result. Um, and they might have some challenging decisions to make about once they found out what that result is. Um, so I really value that it's a mixture of science and um, quite heavy on the communication skills. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, in my job previously working as a paediatrician, that was it was a similar kind of mix. And, and, and often you have this very stressful, and, and, and but on the other hand, a great privilege when you're having very difficult and sometimes very painful conversations with parents aren't you and explaining what the testing has shown and and trying to explain what what the implications might be how do you find those those conversations have you had much experience of that so far I think you're absolutely right that it's a challenge but it's a privilege and and conversations that we might have nearly every day for that family it will be a conversation that they remember for the rest of their lives and um, that's quite humbling to have that opportunity to really kind of engage with someone at a really vulnerable time. Um, It is challenging and I think one of the important things is for me to constantly remind myself that even though I may be behind on my clinic list, I may be running over time and things, it's really important to give each individual family and each individual patient the time that they need because it, it is you know, going to be such a important encounter for them. Yeah, and I think that um, I, I've had experience where parents have relayed back to me what other doctors have said and and because you know some doctor just happened to use an insensitive phrase uh, or said something very pessimistic about their child um, it's often those kind of insensitive comments which which probably at the time the doctor didn't think much about but which can haunt a parent can't they even for months or years Yes, it's so true. We have to be so careful about the words we use. And I know certainly that's something that I often find challenging. And I often think, oh, gosh, I wish I hadn't quite phrased it like that. And again, quite a large part of my job is also writing letters. And for me, it's really important to really go over my letters very carefully, thinking about how it might possibly be interpreted. Um, Because obviously, in letter writing, that's a different communication skill, because people don't hear the tone with which you're writing the letter. So yes, it's really important um, to be very careful in the words that we're using. That's a real difference in clinical practice, isn't it? Because most of my career, when when I was working, we wrote letters to other doctors and health professionals, but by and large, the parents didn't see the letters we wrote. Whereas these days, the normal practice is for parents to receive a copy of anything you write, don't you? So as a result, you have to be really much more careful about how you phrase things and and how parents might interpret this. Indeed, most of my letters I actually write to the patient and then copy in other doctors. And I think that that's quite important when we're using a lot of complex terminology that we use in genetics. Um, and it's it's a delicate balance to make sure we're 
communicating sensitively, but also including all of the information that's necessary so that all of the other doctors are up to date with what's going on as well. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the complexity of the field. Um, I imagine most people you're engaging with, most patients have never had a genetic consultation or thought much about their genes before they, they, they're they kind of forced to by, by medical circumstance. Do you, how do you go about trying to explain some of the the nuances. I think most people, if anything, a bit like me, who maybe studied genes at school briefly in their science classes and, and have this vague idea that we have these bits of code inside ourselves which determine certain aspects of our bodies, but not much more beyond that. How do you go about explaining to someone in kind of non-medical terms what what the gene that you found is and what it might be saying about their future? So it's really important in every consultation to include quite a, a big chunk of time just explaining concepts and then again reinforcing that with any letters that I send out. And we have a lot of sort of information leaflets that we can give families as well. But I think I always try and start from a, a um a very basic assumption of someone's knowledge and then I always tell people that they can tell me if if they know what I'm if they know what I'm trying to explain to them um but it's always better to assume that people um are starting from a very basic level especially when they might be quite nervous seeing a doctor um and they you know don't want to um appear uninformed and it's really helpful to use things like pictures and images so quite often I use a sort of analogy of of genes being like little instructions manuals or recipe books that help our bodies know how to grow and how to develop and we have a whole library of these um these instruction manuals or recipe books um and and so analogies like that can be really quite helpful and again using that with with pictures to help explain it to families and just kind of trying to um recognize at what st- stage their understanding is can be quite helpful as well hmm. I guess it seems like from my perspective, you know, we see more and more talk about gene therapies and genetic medicine in the news. And there seems quite a lot of research and excitement about this as a kind of new frontier for for treating people about, you know, uh, understanding their genes and, and then tailoring particular treatments or medicines based on that. Is that at all part of your work or research as well, that kind of field? In my area of clinical genetics, we're more involved in trying to reach the diagnosis. And then once we've um, helped the patients reach the diagnosis, quite often we'll then pass them on further to um, if they want to be involved with research teams or if there are in some very specific genetic conditions, if there are therapies that are available for them, then we'll be linking them up with other doctors who can provide those. But our role is more in, in trying to reach the diagnosis. So this is one of the big issues, isn't it, in this whole field, is that although in theory, and it's, it's, I'll sometimes call this, this word precision medicine, the idea being that uh, using the genetic information will allow doctors to target therapists absolutely to you as an individual. Although that's a great <clears throat> theory, in reality, the majority of the genetic variants that you're detecting and communicating to parents, there isn't any kind of particular therapy that's currently available. Is that fair enough? That's absolutely right. So the majority of genetic conditions that we diagnose, the the treatment that will be available will be sort of supportive treatments, i.e. we can't stop the condition progressing, um, but we can often 
intervene in ways. So if we know that a certain genetic condition, for example, is associated with kidney problems, then we might advise um, a kidney scan to check for any of those. There are um, several genetic conditions, um, for example, epilepsy disorders, things like that, where there might be treatments that we know work better in certain conditions rather than in other conditions. Um, and certainly the role for treating genetic conditions is expanding. And, you know, there are there are lots of research studies going on and there are some specific conditions such as um, spinal muscular atrophy, where there are um, specific interventions that can be used. But there are also lots of other um, possible impacts of having a diagnosis. So it's not just about being able to access treatment. The other things that might be um, involved are just having an understanding of this, of what condition they have and being able to link up with other families who have the same condition. Um, we can often do personalised letters for school to help them get the right sort of support. Um, they might be able to access screening for other conditions that are associated with their genetic diagnosis and there might be implications for other family members and also there are um, then options available for families um, to decide if they're wanting to extend their family further or have children um, thinking about reproductive options that are available as well. Do you, do you find it difficult that a lot of this work is really, as far as I understand, is based on probabilities? And I think the lay understanding of genes is that if you have gene Y, it will cause consequence X. In most cases, it's such a bit more complex than that. And we're talking about gene Y increases the probability that you might have consequence X. And, and do you find it difficult to kind of communicate that clearly to, to patients? Yes, yeah, so there are there are over 20,000 genes that we have and um, genes are in almost every cell of our body. Um, and the way that genes interact are just hugely complicated and there's so much that we've still got to learn about um, genetics and how the body works. And it's, it's such a hugely expanding field with so many unknowns um, at the moment. And in our role in clinical genetics, we're mainly looking at conditions where a change in one gene, one of those 20,000 genes, could lead to an illness, a, a, a disorder. Um, but not all of those conditions occur in every single person with that genetic change. That's something that we talk about um, we call it variable penetrance and some individuals with that genetic change might not have the disorder um, whereas others with the genetic change would um, and most of the conditions that we see in clinical genetics have a higher penetrance i.e if someone has that genetic change they are more likely to have the disorder but you know even within genetics so for example within cancer genetics which is a a, a, a specialty within genetics that again is looking at percentage chances of developing cancer over the course of your lifetime and so it can be hugely complicated information for individuals to try and process. And do you sometimes feel that giving this information uh, when, when someone is a baby or a child you know giving information to parents and so on that it might actually have unintended bad consequences are, are you aware of that as a possibility? In children where the, they are experiencing lots of different features, I think getting a diagnosis is nearly always helpful for families because they can say, rather than listing all of the features that the child has, they can say, my child has 
this condition and that can be really empowering for families however there are definite challenges with that so first of all if they have a very very rare disease where there is only a few children in the whole world with that condition actually all of a sudden they've got a very very small support network um, and it might be that there's only a handful of patients known with that and they, they suddenly feel very isolate, isolated whereas when they have a general um, genetic undiagnosed condition there's a very very large national support group for that um, called Syndromes Without a Name which is a fantastic organisation so it can be isolating to find that uh, an individual has a very rare genetic condition and then there are also other challenges. So if, a family, if we look at the inheritance of that genetic condition, it may be that it's new in a child for the first time. It may be that they have inherited it from their parents and that can cause lots of problems with um, guilt and um, parents feeling it's my fault, even though actually they obviously had no choice in passing on that condition and didn't know about that. And then also it does pose really challenging questions about sharing genetic information within families. So if there are implications potentially for other family members and challenging decisions about what to do in the future about having other children um, and if there is a risk of a future child also having that condition. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So well, it's, to me, this is one of the fascinating things about why genetics is different from other kind of medical diagnoses, isn't it? So if I'm diagnosed with some kind of problem, you know, usually a medical problem, usually that has implications for me and my future, but it doesn't really have any direct implications for anyone else. Um, but if I'm diagnosed with a genetic and inherited genetic <clears throat> variant, then potentially that has life-changing implications, doesn't it, for other people, for my siblings, uh, for my parents, for my children, uh, for, that, for the whole extended family. And how you navigate that must be extremely complex. It's very complicated for families indeed, and particularly, you know, we live in a society where families are very complicated, they're blended, there's lots of different people involved, and sometimes, sadly, um, you know, people have lost contact with other family members, and it does raise lots of difficult questions. So should someone's genetic information remain private to them, or should they have to share that information when there's potential health, health impacts in, for others and in our kind of western very individualistic society we may feel that actually that information should be private to us however there are implications for other family members and and certainly as doctors we also have to kind of very carefully weigh up the potential um risks and consequences for other family members if that information isn't shared so are there times as a doctor where you you have a duty to breach confidentiality. So even if your patient is saying, look, you know, we've made this diagnosis, but I don't want anyone else in the family to know, um, are there situations where it, it would be right to, to over, override that and tell other people? So we try where 
ever possible to maintain a patient's confidentiality. But a couple of years ago, there was a high court case, um, which was ABC versus St. George's University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, if anyone wants to go away and read about it. And um, to very briefly summarise that, the implications of that, it does bring um, sort of a complexity now around the balancing act of considering maintaining a patient's confidentiality with the potential risks and consequences to other family members. And it is something that we as clinical geneticists have to actively consider. I haven't clinically had the, had the experience of having to breach anyone's confidentiality, but I have had complex discussions within my team and we would kind of, you know, we wouldn't leave this on one person's shoulders. We would have a team discussion about this is the situation, this, this patient doesn't want to share information, what can or should we do about this? And I think quite often, um, patients who are initially reluctant to share information within a family, we can often find ways of, of helping them to do that in a more delicate way and sometimes in a way where they themselves might not be directly named. Um, so it's a hugely complicated area and I think I would you know, really want to reassure anyone listening to this that if they see a clinical geneticist that wherever possible confidentiality is upheld and um, whenever information is shared that is normally through them as a family member we would encourage them to share the information but it is definitely a complicated area i guess there are some um conditions in which you might identify a gene but it doesn't kind of come into play as it were or cause a condition until later in life but it's still kind of untreatable uncurable have you come across situations where maybe your parents have said do you know what i don't want to tell my child that they have this gene that will later in life make them very sick or maybe even kill them like what 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 good is that information going to do them let's just let them be happy and you know when it happens it happens rather than having it hanging over their heads Tim, you've highlighted a really important area of, in, of about genetic testing. And just to kind of expand that a little bit further. So quite a lot of the patients that we see are children. And when we're doing genetic testing in children or in anyone for that matter, one of the potential outcomes is always that we may find what we call an incidental or unexpected finding. What I mean by that is we're looking for a reason for the for, to explain what's going on with that patient, that child probably. Um, but actually, because of the way that the genetic testing works, we find something that might not be relevant to them at that time. So an example would be that if we were testing a child um, using kind of quite a broad panel of genetic testing, we might identify that actually they carry a gene change in a gene called BRCA1, um, which is something that's been in the media headlines a lot over the last few years, which is a, a predisposition to breast and ovarian cancer. Now, the thing with that gene change is that the risks associated with that only really start in adulthood. And we've now found this information out in a child who, you know, otherwise that information wouldn't have come to light. And that's hugely complicated because not only is there then implications for that child in their future, and, you know, it's a hugely complicated area about how we decide to disclose that information and, um, you know, at what point in life it's right to do that. But also, um, as we kind of alluded to earlier, that's 
um, that gene change might have inher been inherited from either the mother or father and there could be implications for other family members. So actually we've been looking for a cause of a ch child's problem and actually we've opened up a whole other area within the family that actually becomes really important to pursue further. Hmm. That sounds really complex and, and murky. And I guess a new, as Dad was saying, a novel medical dilemma that previous generations of doctors didn't have to wrestle with. Yeah, and I think the general view has been that if this genetic information is going to affect a child while they're still a child, then yes, it has to be released and, and, and dealt with and people are informed. If, on the other hand, it's going to affect them when they're an adult... Uh, by and large, <clears throat> we should wait until the person reaches 18 and then um, ask, ask them, you know, do you want to know? Um, we know something about you. We've got your what a genetic information. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, is that what happens, uh, Melody? So depending on what we found, we would then again, as a team, have a discussion about the wording that's that's on the genetic report, for example. So sometimes we can sensitively word it and say, we found out something that will be of, re of relevance for when this child is an adult, please encourage them to um, come back to us at an age appropriate time. So sometimes we can kind of delay that sharing of information. But in general, if we as doctors know something about the genetic results, generally we would want to share that with families because we don't want to kind of be hiding information. In the example that I just used of the breast and ovarian uh, cancer predisposition, that actually, even though um, might not be relevant for that child at that point in time, it might be re of relevance now for that child's mother. Um, and so things like that can make it much more complicated because even though for that child, we might not want to kind of share that information right now when they're two years old and it's of absolutely no relevance to them, but actually we might need to share it within the wider family. And so again, that's hugely complicated and it, it's very much, you know, we take individual approaches when these when we get these complex findings. And again, it's always done as kind of a team. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are just huge challenges that it, it's really difficult to decide what's best to do on. I guess the other thing about genes is that they store other incidental information that you might not be looking for. I mean, a classic example, I don't know if you've ever come across this or heard of this, is, is, is when you test both the parents and a child and discover that contrary to the story being presented, the child might not be genetically related to one of their parents. And then who do you share that information with if it was discovered by accident and that kind of thing? Is that, is that a live concern? That is a very live concern and indeed I have come across that in families um, and we, when we are doing a form of testing called whole genome sequencing, um, which I can, can explain more about later, but when we do that form of testing, ideally we should compare the child with both of their, their biological parents because it helps the lab interpret the results and whenever we do that form of testing, we always tell families that this will reveal um, whether or not you are the true biological parents and um, there is 
ongoing discussions sort of nationally as to if that should always be shared within the family so for example if we found a case of non-paternity where the dad was compared to the child sample and actually we saw that they were not genetically related um, there are ongoing discussions as to in what circumstances should that information be shared and it might not always be shared if we do find that um, but it may be that it is of clinical relevance to share that information if there are risks to other people in the family, for example. Um, so, yes, it's a hugely complicated area, something that we always warn families about. And then if we do find that, again, it's a discussion of weighing up all of the kind of potential consequences of if we do share that information. We're kind of coming towards the end of this um this week's podcast but i wanted to ask before we close how how does your your kind of faith interact with your work in this field i mean it feels like a lot about genetics is 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 quite deterministic it's a lot about you know saying what is baked into your your cells from the moment you were conceived is telling the story of your future life do you ever wrestle with that as a as a christian as a believer who who thinks that actually there's a bigger story in the universe at play here or, or how else might your faith interact with your work I think that my faith is a huge reason that I went into this line of work as well. Um, and I think that it's a really challenging area. And certainly as a Christian, I just have such a great hope within me that even though um, there are so many problems in the genome and we all have um, problems in our genetic code, you know, I have this eternal hope that there will be a time where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and the old order of things will have passed away, which is from Revelation. So I have that hope in the future. But also I do, um, you know, as a Christian, constantly weigh up all of these sort of ethical implications of decisions that we make and um again thinking of of the technologies that we use and what is the best way to use them and you know i i believe that with almost all technologies that we have there are positive ways to use them and there are there are ways that can be more harmful or that can promote health inequalities or have other kind of un, unintended consequences and so for me it's really important to be weighing up those things regularly sort of discussing them with other christians and then trying to have a voice on things where i think it's important to to um, speak out about them great well we're kind of running out of time for this week's show but um thanks so much melody it's been absolutely fascinating hearing a bit more about your work and some of the dilemmas and questions and difficult challenges that you're wrestling with day to day and we're really grateful for you sharing some of that experience we're we're gonna uh, carry on talking with melody in next week's show we're going to pick up on some of the themes we've discussed and also dig in particular into a new program um, as we mentioned in the NHS about um, genome screaming in, in newborn babies so to look out for that uh, but until then thanks everyone for listening thank you Melody um, uh, thanks everyone um, if you if you'd like to find out more information or, or dig into some some more resources on this there's plenty to read listen and to and watch on on John's website uh, that's www.johnwyatt.com um, if you'd like to, to get in touch with us about anything we've said or to suggest a, a guest or a topic, um, you can email molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Otherwise, um, thanks for listening uh, and we'll speak to you all next week. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.